And I'd ask you to turn in God's Word to Proverbs chapter 14, as we have just finished a study through the Belgic Confession. I'm going to take a, a number of weeks to look at a, a major theme in the Bible, namely the fear of God. And I want to begin tonight by establishing that testimony of the Scriptures to show us that indeed that theme, the fear of God, is throughout the the Bible, and we want to know what it means. We'll start to answer that tonight, but we want to uh, recognize that we can't cover that all in one, in one sermon. We want to, in the weeks coming up, uh, Lord willing to explore why we fear the Lord. So we'll be looking at the nature of God and His glory and His, uh, not only His command, but why He is worthy to be feared. And uh, we'll, we'll develop that more, but tonight I want us to look at this theme, which is so often ignored uh, and uh, often misunderstood by those who even uh, claim to, to recognize the theme in Scripture. You can keep your Bibles open tonight. We'll be looking, or I'll be referencing a number of passages, not necessarily going to... Um, Take time to turn there. I mean, unless you're a quick uh, turner, you can keep up. But we'll, we'll look at various passages. But in Proverbs 14, 27, we, we begin uh, this evening God's Word. We read this. The Lord tells us, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. If you ask people today, dear people of God, what is a fountain? Where, where, where is life found? How many people would say, or if you ask them the question, should I fear God? Is that important? Many would say, well, why, why would you fear God? He's, he's love, and uh, he is, uh, he's here for us. And how can a person really have a relationship with someone they fear? And they may be thinking of the idea that it means you're always afraid, cowering in fear, hiding under a table, under a chair, uh, or hiding in another room, or trying to get away. Well, that's not, that's not all that the fear of God talks about. We should be fearful before God, for He is one who does uh, warn us that He will punish sin, even judging those who refuse Him and turn from Him. Jerry Bridges writes in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, there was a time when committed Christians were known as God-fearing people. Now the idea seems like a relic from the past. Now, I don't know if, if uh, you've experienced that, but I, I think I've, I know I've experienced that in talking with people when you say, what does it mean to, what, what comes to your mind when you think about about God and your relationship to Him. Oh, love and, and mercy and compassion and, and God is uh, uh, for me and not against me. And all those things are very true. But rarely today do you hear someone saying, well, I have a fear of God. I have a holy reverence for God. And, uh, and yet when you look at the Scriptures, Acts 9.31, what does it say there? The church multiplied, the early church multiplied, listen to what it says, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
We'll look at that again later. But how is the church described? They were multiplying as a result of what? They were walking in the fear of the Lord. We've moved past that. That was the early church, and now we've, we've got a better understanding of the gospel. At least many would say that. But, but no, that's, that's what the church ought to be recognized for, is a fear of the Lord. And certainly more than that, but not less than that. You say, well, no, I, I've, I've moved past that. We'll look at that tonight. Reverend L. Martin has written a book, The Forgotten Fear, Where Have All the God-Fearers Gone? Well, that is a searching question. Where are the God-fearers today? One of the questions in the background of the book is, how have we gotten so far from the fear of God as a mark of true believers? There are many reasons for this. A large one is because God has become small in our thinking. That's why in coming weeks, uh, Lord willing, we're going to look at who God is, that he is, he is majestic, unlike any other, n- n- can't be compared with anything. And, and just to expand our thoughts as to who God is, God has become small in our thinking, even insignificant. David Wells, in his book, God in the Wasteland, Truth in the Time, uh, the, the I forget the subtitle, something along the lines of truth in a, in a time of fading dreams, writes this. He calls, or he says this, it's a, there's a weightlessness of God. And then he writes this, I do not mean that by this that he is airy, but rather that he has become unimportant. He has been assigned a place on the perifer- periphery of our lives. And he's talking about those who believe in God, who tell the pollsters, oh yes, I'm Christian. He says this, uh, those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television. That shows how old he is, television, who watches television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news And his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. God is just not that significant. We have so many other things we're much more interested in, that we're much more concerned about, that we want to focus on. What's happened? God has been assigned a place on the periphery, on the edge. Children, that's what that means, on the edge of our lives, in a, in a place of insignificance. We're controlled more by personal ambition. We want to get ahead. We want to we find ways of, of, of skipping some steps onto our way of success. The greater our technological achievement, the greater our freedom from God, we think. Fear God, we rarely think about Him today is how David Wells puts it in his book. Fear is seen as a weakness today, isn't it? Years ago, I remember a clothing line that was no fear, and it was written in very aggressive script, no fear. And we have television programs that tell us we are to get beyond our fears, to master our fears, to overcome our fears. Well, now let's be honest. There are some childhood fears that are irrational, and we need to get beyond them, the monster under the bed or 
Maybe in the refrigerator. That, that would be nice. We don't go in the refrigerator for a late-night snack. But, but something like that. But, but there isn't this fear of God is not something that we are to outgrow. We're to be recognized, identified as those who fear God. And that's not just since the fall of man. That was even before the fall. When God came to Adam and Eve, what did he say to them? He said, you eat of any of the trees in the garden. I've provided all that you need, everything necessary. I only ask you that you obey me and not eat of that one tree. For if you do, you shall surely face judgment. You shall die. It's there before the fall. It's a warning. God says, my way is the way of life. I alone am to be worshipped and adored. Do not turn to the right or to the left. God is to be taken seriously. He holds our lives in his hand. And he is a good God. He is not severe. He is not abusive with his power. But he tells us what is for our good. And he also tells us what will harm us. And we must listen. Well, the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It is not something we outgrow, but something which causes us to grow wiser. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Learning the Lord's word brings understanding, helps us to understand the world and the way that we are to live in it. Giving discernment and wisdom. Listen to these words from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 130 says this, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. You listen to the culture today and they say, oh, that's going to just, that's going to throw you back to the dark ages. That's going to throw you way back to the way we used to do things. We've, we've moved beyond that. But the scriptures say, no, indeed, the word of God is a light giving us understanding. It imparts understanding to the simple. 133, verse 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. There, is, there are those things which are wrong, the scripture says. Iniquities, sins that we are to avoid lest we are caught up and led to death. 98, verse 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. There is such a thing as evil. Freedom doesn't mean freedom to just decide for ourselves what's best for me or what way I should go. God declares that way. And then Psalm 19 reminds us again of how the Word of God leads us, how God speaks to us. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, 
blameless, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The fear of the Lord is clean, is wholesome, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord, the just decrees of the Lord are true and righteous all together. God's way for the world was given in the beginning. Proverbs 8, we read that wisdom was there in the beginning. God was showing his design for the world and his pathway to life, which was to obey him, to live blamelessly before him. And as we saw, Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life, where, it, where life comes from, where it, where it bursts forth. In that same chapter, it says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, that way leads to death. When we look at the Scriptures, what is so characteristic of the people of God, when we're, when we're given an example of one who is uh, a person who is set up as an example, what, is it, what do we read? That the fear of the Lord is in them. Remember the story of Job, when the devil comes before God and God says to him, where have you been? He says, I've been roaming to and fro on the earth, basically looking for those he might destroy And the Lord says what? Have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless and upright, and he what? Fears the Lord. And then Satan has this dialogue and says, well, if I was allowed to do this, then he would certainly curse you. And he is permitted to tempt Job, and Job maintains his integrity. And what does God remind him of? He says he is blameless. He what? He fears me. It's not something to get beyond. We don't see Job walking around with a no fear shirt on. We see Job regularly rehearsing what God says. Understanding, trying to understand his own heart and, and, and to, to understand how to respond in these circumstances which seem as though God has forgotten him. And yet he says this, I will look to the Lord and bless him. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He doesn't say, no, I only follow the Lord if he does this or if he does that. He says, the Lord is my life. Fear of the Lord is the DNA of the believer. We could say it that way. What is God looking for in his people, in his leaders? Well, those who fear him. He wants that in our leaders. In Exodus 18, Moses chooses men to share in the work of leading the people. And one of the key qualities that they are to exhibit is this. They must fear God. Exodus 18 and verse 21. They are to fear the Lord. Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the others. 
Deuteronomy 4, verse 10, Moses says that the Lord gave his commandments to his people that they might know what it means to fear him. So we know what it looks like to fear him. We we start to, to develop a definition. What does it mean to fear God? It means to obey him. It means to submit to his word. It means to to then do his word. To walk in that way of life. Psalms call rulers to serve the Lord with fear. Kings and all rulers, Psalm 2, verses 10 and 11. Deuteronomy 17, I was reading that just this week. There it says, if you have a king over you, he is to be one who fears the Lord. How does he know what that looks like? Verse 19, Deuteronomy 17. Uh, and it shall be with this king, with him, and he shall read, or he is to write a copy of the law. It shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law, of this law, and these statutes, and doing them. message of the Lord is to go out through his people so that all people might fear him. That from Psalm 67, which we read for our, all the worship this evening. Verse 7 speaks of how the word is to go out that all people might fear him. Psalm 103 says that the Lord's love is toward those who fear him. He shows compassion on those who fear him. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's where it starts. It doesn't mean we then move beyond it. It's, it's foundational. It's, it's that which establishes us to, to uh, endure the storms that come. Jesus says the wise man does what? He builds his house upon the rock, upon God's Word, that when the storms come, he might stand. He might endure. might have a solid foundation. Do Christians need to fear God? Well, we've been illustrating that they do, but I want to draw attention to one passage in particular, Isaiah chapter 11, where we read of the Messiah to come, a prophecy of the Messiah. And it's very interesting what we read about this Messiah, God's chosen one. Listen to those words in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might. And note this, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Spirit would rest upon the Messiah as the spirit of the fear of the Lord. He would delight in submitting to the Lord. Fear of the Lord isn't incompatible with assurance. That's something I want to mention at at this point. Because then we say, oh, well, fear of the Lord means you've always got to be be, be afraid and, and never certain of Whether or not you're saved, no, the Scriptures say, I write these things to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have everlasting life, 1 John 5, 13. And another another point where we want to go is, is Jesus at his baptism. There he's receiving the spirit of the fear of the Lord, but he's also being assured, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
he will exhibit a fear of me, a reverence, an obedience. Fear of the Lord isn't incompatible with assurance. God says, as you grow in fear, you are growing more and more as I am working in you. The new covenant, we read about that in Jeremiah chapter 32. The new covenant, we say, well, that's, that'll tell us what, what's moving forward. There was a fear in the Old Testament. Now, in the, as we look to the new covenant, that, that will be erased. No, it says, listen carefully, Jeremiah 32 verse 38 They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever. For their own good, and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. When God regenerates a person, he works in that person a fear of him. Desire to serve him, to not disobey him, to love him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's really what's behind the believer's perseverance in faith, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. The spirit of this age says, well, sure, you can be religious, just don't don't spend your life at it. And you can, the Lord is gracious, and they give all of these aspects of the Lord, and they they make them the the sum total of God. Well, he's he's gracious, he's merciful, he's compassionate, so just go and, and, and live and don't worry about it. And yet, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of God leads us to Fear him. It's a major theme in the Old Testament. Not an optional virtue, as Al Martin writes in his book, but essential in God's saving work. What about the New Testament? Does fear of God recede into the background? There's many passages we can point to in the New Testament as well. One I want to point us to is Matthew chapter 10. An interesting passage where we see in our English Bibles a non-inspired heading of have no fear. There in Matthew 10, starting verse 26, have no fear. And yet, what does Jesus say in verse 28? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy body, uh, both soul and body in hell. So there's a, there's a, a, a teaching there. Don't, don't fear those who have only Uh, their hands upon your body. Fear him who determines your eternal destiny. That helps us understand a bit more what that fear consists of, that we would be living for the Lord. The Lord watches over us. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. The Lord knows his own, right? He will rescue them. He's saying, don't fear man, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the sum total. The writer of Ecclesiastes, right? You probably hear those words and, and recognize them. 
where it's, uh, he's reflected upon all these ways of living, the writer of Ecclesiastes, and at the end he says, the end of the matter, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It means to study his word, to respond in faith to it. It means keeping his commandments. He gives his word so that we might not wonder what is the pathway of life. And we're told if we ignore it, we endanger our very lives. Interesting again, going back to the Old Testament, I I could have put this in the Old Testament section, but, but going back when Moses speaks to the people after the giving of the law in Exodus 20, verse 20, he says, do not fear. As the people are cowering in fear, they see the fire and they see the smoke on the mountain as the law is given. And Moses says, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. We're going to explore that more in coming sermons. But it is something that we need to say in our introduction that the fear of God ought to lead us to turn from sin. To follow his way. He wants only the best for us. When he disciplines us, he does it to turn us from sin and to alert us to the consequences of sin. When he disciplines us, we don't doubt his love. It's an illustration of his love. He disciplines those whom he loves, Hebrews 12 says. Well, now we introduce that idea of discipline. We say, well, well, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Says Says the... the, the modern uh, uh, person looking at Scripture. No, no, no. Not, not my God. He doesn't, he doesn't. What are you talking about discipline? He just, he is indulgent. He's long-suffering. And they pull all the, these verses out of the Old Testament. He's, he's, he's gracious and compassionate. Psalm 103. And this, all, all true. All, all to our, to our <laughs> certainty. Say, yes, the Lord is gracious. He is merciful. And therefore, We do not doubt that he saves, for he has poured out his just wrath on his Son and graciously united us to him by faith. Listen to what Jerry Bridges says about this idea of discipline. Many Christians seem to disregard the prospect of God's discipline. They apparently don't believe that stubborn and persistent continuance in sin will bring about God's fatherly displeasure. What is their conclusion? They mistake God's grace for a license to live as they please on the assumption that God's forgiveness is automatic and unconditional. And we hear that word unconditional and say, whoa, whoa, pastor, hold on. We, we do believe in unconditional. Yes, unconditional election, right? We're not saved by anything we've done. We're not saved by who we're connected to or what church we go to. There is God elects us in spite of ourselves. He elects us in Christ. But he is not on the hook, so to speak, to forgive us for everything we've done. Just saying, yeah, you know, I did promise that I would save you. And so I'm just going to turn a blind eye to your sin. He doesn't want us to live in sin. He doesn't want us to live unholy lives. He warns us that these patterns will get uh, become, become a part of our character. We saw that in Esau. As he grew up, he, he just continued in these sinful patterns and was led away from the Lord. When someone says, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but God forgives, we see there 
a sign that that individual doesn't understand the fear of the Lord. You might not like to hear that, or you say, well, now, wait a minute, that seems a little harsh, but Scripture teaches us that we are to live our lives here in reverent fear, 1 Peter 1.17. For our God is a consuming fire, we read in Hebrews 12. But in 1 Peter 1, we read that he's an impartial judge. In other words, he will judge sin accordingly. He doesn't look at us and say, well, I know, again, what I said just a few moments ago, I know what family you're from or I know what church you go to, so I'm just going to ignore those sins and, and, and just pretend they didn't uh, happen. I'll just give you a, a, a pass because you do go to that particular place or you are connected to those particular people. No, he judges impartially. Therefore, we are to live our lives here in reverent Fear. Let me make a clarifying point because I want us to be sure we understand this. Our sins are, in a judicial sense, forgiven in Christ, past, present, and future. Paul says it, Colossians chapter 2. He says, He forgave us, God forgave us our sins in Christ, past tense. But we ought to fear God and not be surprised. He disciplines us for a persistent, unrepentant sin in our lives. God knows when we are truly wrestling with sin. He's not, again, abusive in discipline, but he also knows when we are just being dismissive of sin and saying, well, well, I don't think that really matters all that much anymore. We had that old view of God where he, he was... Heavy and harsh, but now, now we have a kinder, gentler theology. We need to be careful. We're called to turn from sin. Again, as I said earlier, we would look back to Acts 9.31. The early church was characterized by a fear of God and comfort in the Spirit. Those two are not... Uh, 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 mutually exclusive. It isn't that, that when the Spirit is present, therefore we no longer have a fear of God. We recognize that the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of fear of God. The Spirit leads us to love the Lord and to want to live for Him, but also comforting us that in Jesus Christ we have all of our sins forgiven and may come to Him as we see in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. When we come near, we're reminded again of what Christ has done that he has shed his own blood, that he has given his body for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. That as we partake, we are being mindful that we're united to him by faith. God calls us to come. He says, come. I want you to draw near, knowing that in Christ you have the forgiveness of sins. The, The warning in the book of Hebrews is not... Uh, uh, do more. The writer of Hebrews says, don't go back to the old way. Don't go back to the old system where you're, we're offering sacrifices, but rather come to the Lord and worship in reverent fear with confidence that he will receive you. The fear of God, this is this by way of, of, of just a, a broad application, the fear of God has a, makes a difference in our lives. It isn't just this vague notion, well, the fear of God is, is, uh, uh, just, just means, yep, we know God exists. 
Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, since we have the promises that he will be a a God to us, as he says in chapter 6, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting or uh, maturing in holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7.1. So there's, a, there's an impact every day. What I look at, Lord, turn my eyes away from worthless things, Psalm 119. What I listen to, Lord, keep me from, from uh, uh, those things which would, would lead me to doubt your promises. Lord, purify my, my thoughts that I would, would think only upon that which is excellent and praiseworthy, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. Because I know this is what you ha- would have for me. I want to live for you. The fear of God is so fundamental to godliness that it's even unto eternity. Look at Revelation 15, if you like, or you can listen. Revelation 15, where, we, where John sees the revelation and what, he, what he's taking in is signs in heaven and there the people of God singing the song of Moses and recognizing that they are to have a fear of the Lord. Listen to this. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In light of the marvelous deeds of the Lord, in light of his righteousness, the redeemed properly fear and reverence God even in eternity. And we learn that. We begin that even now. Well, then just very briefly, some conclusions. To be devoid of the fear of God is to be devoid of biblical and saving religion. When we come to practice, as it were, our religion, we are recognize and we're reflecting in our doing what we believe and when God is speaking then we are submitting ourselves praying that God would speak to our hearts and to our minds he would give us ears to hear eyes to see secondly one of the accurate measurements of true spiritual growth is the measure of increase in the fear of God Fear of the Lord characterized Jesus. So the more his church is filled with the spirit of the Lord, the more it will live, worship, and witness in the fear of the Lord. Thirdly, to be ignorant of the meaning of the fear of God is to be ignorant of the basic and pervasive theme in Scripture. It's essential to our understanding. It guides us as we hope and pray to see in the coming weeks. How does this, what does this look like? What is it, uh, how is it driven? What's feeding that that healthy fear of God? L. Martin says this, if we claim to uh, love the Lord and live, uh, and uh, excuse me, if we claim to love the Lord and the truths of the Bible, we cannot be indifferent to this predominant theme in Scripture. And Jeff Thomas writes, a stranger to the fear of God is a stranger to the living God himself. Fear of God is an essential mark of true religion. Going back to the verse that we opened with, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. 
the fear of the Lord, submitting to his word. The devil will tempt you away from that. The world wants to throw off all authority and say, well, no. No, the fountain of life is total autonomy. Complete freedom to do what I believe to be right. And truly, our own weak flesh wrestles against this truth. And so we need God's help to grow in this attitude. We need to remember our Lord Jesus Christ, who delighted in the fear of his Father. He said, I've come to earth to do the will of my Father in every aspect. And he has done it perfectly, wholly, completely, such that you who believe in him have the certainty that in him there is eternal life for you. Forgiveness of sins, fully, freely. John Murray has written that the fear of God is the soul of godliness, the heart of godliness. It's a good summary that I think we'll use as we move forward in this study of the fear of God. I'm not sure I want to end on this point, but I have it down here to end with stating it the opposite way or the opposite truth that the Bible sets before us. The Bible says that the central lack of the wicked is this. Do you know what it is? They have no fear of God before their eyes. So when they throw it off or they dismiss it and they say, well, you know, it's, it's important, but it's not a salvation issue or some such comment, we say, well, now wait a minute. If it's in God's word, it's important. Not just the red letters that Jesus spoke, all of it. And what it has to say to us. And then we, as those filled by the Spirit of the Lord, delight to fear the Lord, to live for Him day by day. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we embark on this study of fear of you, help us to have that balanced perspective, to have desire to learn and to grow in a proper fear of you, not to take your word lightly or to simply leave it on the shelf, but to open it and to hear, to listen for your voice. To know that we are reading your very word. It's not, it doesn't become the word when we respond to it. It is your word and we are to respond to it. To do otherwise is to be disobedient. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for keeping commandments perfectly. For living that perfect life. For dying that substitutionary death for us. We're now interceding for us before the Father. Oh, bring these, our concerns, before your Father that we might see you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as set apart, as glorified in our lives. Hear us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.